CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Convention season may be scaled back, but partisan acrimony is ramping up, along with COVID infections and death rates. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, Princeton historian Julian Zelizer on the origins of today's toxic politics and the man he says engineered it all, Newt Gingrich. He gave them a controversy, and that controversy gave him national coverage of the attacks against the Democrats and him as a power broker in Washington. Zelizer's new book, Burning Down the House, follows Newt's coup against House Speaker Jim Wright in 1989, and how his precision strikes in the media and his obstructionist style forever changed congressional warfare. You can allow government to become much more dysfunctional. You can do dangerous things because dysfunctional government literally fulfills the argument you're making. The fall of a speaker and the rise of the win-at-all-cost strategy that shows no signs of ending in 2020. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The scaled-back, prolifically-streamed Democratic National Convention wrapped up in Milwaukee this week. Republicans will gather in Charlotte beginning on Monday with mandated masks, Bluetooth tracking of attendees, and a severely restricted presence of the press corps. Politics is again center stage at a time when partisan rancor is rising, along with COVID-19 infection and death rates. Divisions that have hobbled the nation's response to the pandemic and to our sinking economy. So today, one theory on how American politics got so broken. In his new book, Burning Down the House, Princeton professor and best-selling author Julian Zelizer puts a precise date on the origins of our toxic political environment. The downfall of House Speaker Jim Wright. The engineer of that seismic takedown? Georgia Congressman Newt Gingrich. Zelizer proposes that Gingrich's name-calling, win-at-all-cost style turned politics as blood sport into a winning strategy, changing the rules of congressional warfare for the decades that followed. While known for his reign as Speaker of the House in the 90s, burning down the House focuses on earlier vintage Newt. I spoke with Zelitzer at a virtual event for Acapella Books and asked why Gingrich's campaign against Wright is so critical to understanding what was to come. Well, the question for me was, when did Newt Gingrich and his approach to partisanship, which he was very explicit about, uh, a sort of uh, ultra-aggressive uh, partisanship where institutions and norms were fair game, character assassination was fair game, when did that become part of the mainstream Republican Party? And 1989 uh, is a key year because he is on a campaign to bring down the Speaker of the House Speaker Jim Wright, who's a Democrat from Texas, and he's successful. Uh, And it's a bit of a house of cards political thriller, but Gingrich's success in the end at bringing down the speaker, first time a speaker resigns in American history was a big deal. And many Republicans uh, decide at that moment that Gingrich is the wave of the future. And that even if they didn't like him, even if they thought he was kind of toxic, he was on to something. And so that's why I picked that year. It's a real turning point, I think, in political history. But the book begins much earlier, where we begin to get this portrait of a brazenly confident kid emerging. He says, I was a 50-year-old at nine of himself. And he's the kid in school who, who carried a briefcase and had a pocket protector in high school in Columbus, Georgia. 
you quote a college friend of his who said that Newt didn't understand the White Album, the Beatles' White Album. So basically, he was a nerd. When did he set his sights on public policy? He was always interested in politics. Uh, even as a youth, I tell a story when he was visiting his uh, family in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is actually where they were from, right outside of Harrisburg. Uh, he wants there to be a zoo in town, and there's no zoo. He had seen a documentary as a kid. And so this little kid goes to the uh, city government offices and actually meets with officials asking them to build a zoo. Uh, and, and that is Newt Gingrich very young. He spends a lot of time in Europe as a teenager uh, because uh, he's an army brat and his stepfather's moving around in different positions. And he studies a lot of European history, becomes very interested uh, in war and military campaigns. So, this is part of him, and it culminates in him uh, going to Tulane as a graduate student and getting a PhD in history. Yeah. So a couple things there. When he made his appeal to the mayor for a zoo, he also lands in the local paper, which I think is uh, one of the critical things to understanding what Newt was to become. Uh, somebody who really prized the role of the media or really used, leveraged it in his rise. But going back to that period when he's in college, he's by 1970, he's married, he's got two kids. He, he married his high school geometry teacher. His first year as a professor, a history professor at West Georgia College, he's stunned that the administration rejects his application to become president of the college. And he starts campaigning for Rockefeller, then for Nixon. What did he take away from the Nixon playbook? Yeah, he, he was a Rockefeller Republican, which is a term we use to describe moderate Republicans. Rockefeller was from New York. He was pretty progressive on uh, civil rights issues, for example. Uh, but what he really took from both of those, especially from Nixon, was the idea that Republicans had to figure out how to build a grand coalition, the equivalent of what FDR had done in the 1930s. And uh, that's what he loved about Nixon, more than the policies, more than the ideas. And he comes of age in an era where Republicans are barely a presence in the South. Uh, and they're also a minority party in Congress. Uh, Democrats have controlled Congress since 1954. And, and so he's seen what Nixon is doing before the downfall of Watergate. And he starts to quickly imagine how could he be the person that does that for Republicans on Capitol Hill in Washington, as well as obviously in his own district, uh, by having a Republican candidate actually win. So he takes a couple of two unsuccessful runs for Congress in Georgia's sixth district. Interesting time, too. It's sort of a little bit of the New South versus the Old South at that time, because the district is changing very quickly. Respectable showings there, but by 1978, he gets help from the RNC, the Republican National Committee. And this becomes a pretty nasty race against Virginia Shepard. How would you characterize him as a candidate in this race? Yeah, so he's interesting. He had taken on in 74 and 76 Congressman Jack Flint, who is an old uh, kind of Southern Democrat who basically was no longer in tune with his district, which had been redistricted. It was becoming more suburban, more business-centered, less rural. Uh, Gingrich loses his, he loses in 74 and 76. Part of it is he's brought down by Watergate, as many Republicans are. 78, Flint's retired, so he's facing Shepard. And, and one important thing is their national Republicans have now uh, noticed who this guy is. He, he's already gotten his name in the media, which is always very important to him. And he's seen as this new voice of Southern Republican politics. 
politics. So they give him money, they give him campaign staff, they give him consultants. Uh, so he's running a pretty sophisticated campaign. Shepard's in the state government, uh, and she's a moderate uh, Democrat on most issues. But he instantly shows you know, how tough he's going to be in campaigns, and he starts to shape how the public sees her character. And one of the issues that comes up is that she said she would move to Washington, her family would stay in the district if she won, because her husband had a job here. And his campaign is quickly talking about how she uh, is putting her job above her family. There's a lot of campaign events and photos I found in the old papers, him always surrounded by his family and really hammering in that message toward the final weeks. And that's the most famous of the many kinds of attacks he leveled, which left um, Shepard and her people stunned at how far he went. Uh, and even uh, the Atlanta Constitution, which had endorsed Gingrich in previous campaigns, won't do it. And, and they say something like they can't believe the kind of lying that he had engaged in uh, to, to defeat her. But he defeats her. So, so the gloves are off. And, and he carries this bare knuckle determination to knock down Democratic dominance in the House. But he's also rejecting the uh, kind of back on their heel stance of his own party can you give us a sense of 1970s era Republicans and what Newt thinks their strategy should be? Yeah, he thinks that Republicans in Congress were uh, basically too accepting of the status quo and that they had now for generations almost been in this situation where Democrats were in power and they got used to it. So one of his targets was a guy named uh, Robert Michael, who's the House Minority Leader. He's from Illinois. He's very much a get along kind of Republican. He's a conservative, but he believes Democrats control the chamber, so the best bet is to negotiate and try to get Republican uh, preferences in, in a bill to remain part of the negotiating table. And Gingrich can't stand that. And, and he's, he's writing memos very early on to Michael who's saying, forget about bipartisanship, say forget about civility. All that does is keep Republicans out of power. And that if we're gonna change this, if we're ultimately gonna win control, we have to abandon that. We're basically gonna obstruct and take down the Democrats, not work with them. And, and early on for someone like Robert Michael, what they're seeing is dangerous. Uh, they're very worried about him. They don't ultimately think he's gonna be a power broker, but many of them are not comfortable early on with what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Well, your read is that Newt is really not that interested in legislation, but he is much more interested in shifting the focus of the party and shifting the players from the establishment versus the outsider, not, not liberal versus conservative. So he is pretty much operating on the fringe. Can, tell us more about how he is regarded by the Republican Party establishment. Yeah, so that's, that's the argument that he makes um, is exactly that. He's less focused on the traditional polls of politics, especially as the Reagan era starts, he thinks the Democrats are really vulnerable if they are painted as the establishment. And, and what was remarkable in his archives is how consistent he was on this theme since 74, the first time he ran. That's how he was gonna take the Democrats down. He was gonna make them seem old, out of touch, and basically holding their power through corrupt means. And everyone associated with the power would almost be criminalized. Uh, and so this is his principal argument, and, and he uses rhetoric. It's hard to capture now because we're all so familiar with this kind of rhetoric. 
gets incredibly blistering about his opponent throwing out all sorts of accusations about Democrats and, and, and just kind of wildly putting out a smear, uh, knowing that the media would cover it. And so many Republicans early on, at least rhetorically, they're saying this stuff is dangerous. They're not so far away from Democrats who are calling him a new Joe McCarthy. Um, but that's initially what they're seeing. And he, he does a lot of kind of media stunts on cable television and in front of the print press that they're not comfortable with. They didn't know that's how the new political game was going to be played. Well, his, so his venom is based on this argument that the asymmetric power has left Republicans you know, anemic, basically uh, not getting good committee positions, the short end of the stick for offices and staffing, gerrymandering. Does he have a point? Yeah, no, he had a point. He often Gingrich was basing his arguments on something that was true and then building on that with things that were untrue. But Democrats had been pretty tough with Republicans. And if you were a Republican in the House during those years, you had almost no influence. And uh, Democrats used all the leverage they could to stop Republican participation. And that became even more important after 1980 because Republicans did gain control of the Senate. So the House was the last stand for American liberalism. And I think uh, then Majority Leader Jim Wright, Speaker Tip O'Neill, who's the speaker before my story really kind of reaches its climactic moment, they were the last defense for this social safety net, for a lot of the federal budget devoted to domestic needs. So they got even tougher with the Republicans. And as they saw people like Gingrich coming in, they really clamped out because they understood the noise was getting louder, the tactics were getting more aggressive, and uh, Gingrich taps into this because he understands Republicans are frustrated. And so when you have a frustrated group of colleagues, uh, you can win support for things they might otherwise not have accepted. We're learning about Newt Gingrich's early years as a U.S. congressman from Georgia with Julian Zelizer. His new book, Burning Down the House, follows a few critical years that Zelizer says laid the foundation for the partisan rancor of today. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're going to hear just how Gingrich went from backbencher to take down the Speaker of the House and why the How to Speak Like Newt style guide proved so useful to Republicans. That's when On Second Thought continues. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Back to my conversation with Julian Zelizer, author and Princeton University professor. Zelizer's most recent book, Burning Down the House, follows then-Georgia House Representative Newt Gingrich's unwavering two-year campaign to take down Jim Wright. The 18-term Texas Democrat succeeded Tip O'Neill as Speaker of the U.S. House in 1987. Wright was an old-school Democrat, first elected to Congress in 1954. Zelizer's last book, Fault Lines, co-authored with Kevin Cruz, was about fissures that developed in politics after Watergate brought Republican President Richard Nixon down for corruption. I interviewed Zelizer for a virtual event sponsored by Acapella Books and asked him what Newt understood about the post-Watergate era that made his strategy to paint Democrats as corrupt work to such successful effect. Well, he really had a good feel for the tenor of the country and how it had shifted as a result of Watergate, as a result of Vietnam, there were just huge levels of distrust in this country toward all government. And what he understood, while Watergate was about Nixon, that made every part of the political establishment vulnerable and weak. And if you launch attacks revolving around corruption and anti-establishment rhetoric, that would really resonate in a country that was just sick of how all institutions work. 
And he also had a great feel for how the media was changing. Uh, two big things in the book, cable television and investigative journalism, both of which are flourishing in the 1980s. He sees in them not just mechanisms of journalism and communications, but things that could be really weaponized uh, as partisan tools. And uh, Jim Wright wasn't really getting how much that had changed how Washington worked. Mm-hmm. So, so Newt becomes this go-to guy for a great quote, whereas Jim Wright's a kind of old, old school orator, and and he turns C-SPAN into an arena for Republican theatrics. This is Newt in this case. So, how did he how did he use the media in his bid to paint the Democrats and the Speaker, especially as corrupt? Well, cable television. This the story I have in the book. It, it's in nineteen eighty four. Uh, where Gingrich and his group of fellow, he has a caucus he creates of allies called the Conservative Opportunity Society. Uh, they realize something that uh, C-SPAN is covering the House all the time as a result of the channel being launched in 1979. Uh, the House had opened up the floor for the first time as part of the sunshine reforms. And he sees this and he says, so if I speak on the floor at the end of the day, people are gonna be watching. And at the end of every single day in May of 1984, he and his allies took to the floor and they started to say, Democrats are weak on defense, Democrats don't care about the country's security, Democrats are just basically stifling Ronald Reagan as he tries to protect us from communism. And it gets even worse, he starts accusing specific Democrats by name of doing this and he asks them to respond. And if you're watching on C-SPAN, all you see is nothing. You see Gingrich or his colleagues, and the Democrats don't have an answer. It looks like they're guilty. Um, but what you couldn't see was the chamber was empty. At the end of the day. There was no one there. Uh, and the whole thing blows up. Uh, the Democrats pan the chamber to show this is theater. First of all, for the speaker made the allegation earlier that I read my paper into the record when the House was empty and implied that it's because I was afraid to be criticized. Now, I think we're proving today that we're willing to rise in the House when there are a number of members in the House, that we're willing to talk with some of the most eloquent and intelligent members of the Democratic Party, and that we're not trying to hide anything. I just want to make that point. But in the end, this gets him on all three major news networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They're covering him. They're covering what's called cam scam. And he understands why that was ultimately what he wanted him most. He gave them a controversy, and that controversy gave him national coverage of the attacks against the Democrats and him as a power broker in Washington. So that's one example of how the media became one of his key tools. So he's trying to take advantage of these post-Watergate reforms. And Jim Wright himself, he's not a big fan of these reforms necessarily, He's also a guy with a kind of hair-trigger temperament, a a reputation also as a win-at-all-cost kind of politician. But these accusations uh, Newt makes against him get dragged in the media before uh, before the House Ethics Committee even decides his fate. That You quote somebody, a Democrat, who says it was like a never-ending funeral with an open casket. You know, there have been attempts to rescue Jim Wright's reputation, certainly, but I think he's always been dismissed as somewhat slippery. Did, did he use his power illegally? No, he didn't use his power illegally. At least that was never proved uh, at all. Uh, he had bad judgment, for sure. He didn't totally understand how some things he did would look bad in the post-Watergate era. Uh, this is a guy who had been in office since the 1950s. He was 
groomed by Lyndon Johnson. He was comfortable with that uh, older style of politics. Uh, and what Gingrich picks up on are investigative journalists who are writing some stories looking into Wright's relationships with some real estate developer in, in the district, how he used to sell a book that he published of speeches in bulk uh, to, uh, to groups that he spoke with. And none of this was illegal. None of it broke any ethics rules. Um, but Gingrich would take bits and pieces of this story, stitch them together, and he would argue in a slogan, this is the most corrupt speaker in American history. And most Democrats initially dismiss this and they're like, come on, that's really blowing up this kind of stuff. Uh, but the House Ethics Committee starts an investigation after a while uh, and they never finish it. And they never find anything that actually violates an ethics rule, but it's enough to whip the city up into a frenzy and to pressure right into resigning. Mm -hmm. And now I'll add one thing based on something you said. What was really interesting was the way Wright fought this was he had his lawyers, he had some very talented lawyers, and they would rebut each accusation with these voluminous documents going through all the technical language of the House ethics rules created after Watergate and showing he's allowed to sell a book in bulk. It doesn't, it's not covered by the ethics rule. There are technical legal answers. Gingrich would get in front of the reporters and just repeat, he's the most corrupt speaker. And that worked. And, and Wright's kind of response is just, you know, uh, drew uh, empty stares. Well, I think Gingrich seemed to get that it isn't about what is actually happening. It's about the perception of what is happening and how he put that to work for himself. That's exactly right. I mean, the perception was important in terms of how do you get media attention? The more conflict and the more controversy he understood worked to his favor. He said, you have to give the media more Indiana Jones than Philharmonic. <laughs> and it was also the words you used. And it was about telling a story, whether it was true or untrue. It was about who had the better story, the more compelling story. And I think both of those were very important to his success. In fact, he, uh, his little pack, or uh, go pack, I think it was called, that he put together in the 80s, put out a How to Speak Like Newt playbook. Uh, I think it's called The Language, A Key Mechanism of Control. So he really got that. But what was speaking like Newt? Yeah, I have. A, I mean, I, so this comes out in 1990, and this is a group that he controlled, GOPAC. And the principal thing they did, they sent video, audio tapes and videotapes eventually and memos about strategy. And this memo says, this is how you speak like Newt. You call Democrats, you have to use words like corruption, traitors, sick, radical, shame, pathetic, steal, lie. And that's how you speak like Newt. And I think everyone who knew Gingrich at the time understood that was a pretty accurate description of the kinds of stuff he said. Uh, but again, today that sounds, we hear that all the time, but at the moment, that was a new level of rhetoric through which to engage your opponents, especially if you were a leader of the party rather than a backbencher. Well, Wright and other Democrats didn't really engage with him on that level. How had that kind of partisan name calling, even if it wasn't that severe in the past, how had that vitriol been handled before in the House? Well, that's what Wright was counting on. It would ultimately be contained. I mean, Jim Wright assumed this was maybe like a new Joe McCarthy that it could be dangerous, it could grow, 
but ultimately it would be reined in. That's how our political system worked. Ultimately, Joe McCarthy was reined in by the Republican Party and pushed aside. And that was the tradition. I mean, that was often what happened, but he uh, underestimated how this one was going to go because instead of being pushed aside, he's actually brought in by the Republican leaders and given a leadership position. Uh, and that's what makes this story so much different than the long history of the political bomb throwers who have inhabited Washington. My guest is Julian Zelliser, and we're talking about his book, Burning Down the House. It's an historically detailed and wildly entertaining record of how Newt Gingrich expanded the boundaries of congressional warfare. So at this point, it's 1988, 1989, Newt is repeatedly calling Speaker Wright corrupt inside and outside of the House. He's digging up denigrating articles about Wright and getting some traction, but all of this could be dismissed as partisan nastiness. He then urges Common Cause, this is one of the new reform watchdog groups post-Watergate, to look into claims of corruption. And he hopes add some momentum and legitimacy to his campaign. What does that mean in his fight against the Speaker? It's really important. I mean, that's what made these ethics rules so potent. They, they did have support in the country, the idea of making politicians more accountable. And there was an infrastructure of organizations that had formed in the aftermath of Watergate that are devoted to these good government issues. How do you fix ethics? How do you fix campaign finance? And he starts the campaign against uh, Wright, and he's talking about it in the press, and he literally carries around articles that he gives to other members of Congress and to reporters so they cover it more. But eventually, Common Cause, which is headed by a guy named Fred Wertheimer, they're feeling pressure, and they decide on their own. Wertheimer says this was not because of Gingrich, but that at least it was worthy of looking into. There were enough stories about Wright that they felt it was legitimate for the Ethics Committee to look into it. And once they do that, they are a nonpartisan organization. It was a turning point because it gave Gingrich's campaign this legitimacy, nonpartisan legitimacy, which it didn't have, and he never had. Uh, but all of a sudden, the issue is transformed in Washington. You could talk about it. Editorial boards of newspapers started to ask questions. And Wright was then on the defense. So nearly a year after the Ethics Committee voted to convene hearings on this, an exhausted Jim Wright just folds and, and becomes the first speaker, as you mentioned, in American history to step down. This is a speech taught in some rhetoric classes. It really is remarkable. And, and you cover it in detail, a play-by-play -play of this giant of the house so diminished and so unequipped for the, for the flamethrower that hit him. What was the effect of that speech? Yeah, the effect was uh, a dramatic piece of rhetoric that didn't actually capture what was gonna happen. Meaning Wright gives a one hour speech, everyone's in the chamber for this, uh, it, it, and it's a very moving speech. And he goes through every single accusation made against them, and he says why, in detail, each is just not true. It, it, there's no validity to it. But in the end, he says, I'm gonna give this job up that I have, I'm gonna give it back to all of you. And he asks both parties to stop what's about to happen. I mean, he's focused on the Republicans, but he's even asking his party in this speech, don't respond, don't retaliate against Gingrich. And he says, otherwise we will be consumed by a mindless cannibalism. And it is grievously hurtful to our society. Vilification becomes an accepted form of political debate. Negative campaigning becomes a full-time occupation. 
when members of each party become self-appointed vigilantes, carrying out personal vendettas against members of the other party. God's name, that's not what this institution is supposed to be all about. When vengeance becomes more desirable than vindication, harsh personal attacks upon one another's motives and one another's character drown out the quiet logic of serious debate on important issues, things that we ought to be involved ourselves in. Surely that's unworthy of our institution, unworthy of our American political process. All of us in both political parties must resolve to bring this period of mindless cannibalism to an end. There's been enough of it. Uh, and the assumption of the speech is interesting in itself. The assumption is, if, he's, if he gives himself up, if he does this uh, heroic act, it will stop. That, that really that's what Gingrich wanted. Um, but one of the things I argue is that wasn't true. He was just one piece of this larger strategy. He happened to be in the seat. And he was useful as a foil. But Gingrich instantly continues. I mean, right after Wright resigns, Gingrich announces the other members he's going to go after. And uh, the campaign accelerates with a House banking scandal in 1991. So, so this doesn't stop at all. And it captures how Democrats, I think, not just right, really didn't understand where this was all going. Is it fair to say that only Republicans picked up this kind of vicious tactics? I do try to argue, uh, look, both parties become very partisan, both become tougher, but Republicans are far uh, ahead of, and they remain, uh, of where Democrats are comfortable going. I think that Republicans, starting with Gingrich, are willing to put partisanship as the primary goal in most decisions. And other concerns, governance, maintaining the health of the institution for Gingrich, those are put aside. Democrats are still balancing that to this day. And it's because the parties are different. I argue that Democrats are a party that still believes in government. Uh, that's their biggest promise. Government can help us solve problems. So if you believe in government, you can't be so partisan that you're going to ultimately destroy the ability of government function. Gingrich is in a party which is anti-government. That was the Reagan philosophy. And so you can allow government to become much more dysfunctional. You can do dangerous things in terms of uh, how government will work because dysfunctional government literally fulfills the argument you're making. Julian Zelizer on the fall of a House Speaker and his reading of how Newt Gingrich changed the tactics, the arsenal, and the very arena of partisan politics. Our conversation took place on Zoom for Acapella Books. We're going to take a quick break, and when On Second Thought continues, more on burning down the House and how the events of 1987 to 89 reverberate in the toxic political environment of today. Stick around for more On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Back with a long-form conversation with Julian Zelliser, author and Princeton University professor and CNN analyst. I spoke with him for a virtual book event that included questions from the audience. Zelliser's most recent book, Burning Down the House, lays the blame for today's poisoned political culture at the feet of Newt Gingrich. 
Selitzer proposes that the U.S. congressman from Georgia and former Speaker of the House pioneered the name-calling, conspiratorial messaging, and obstructionism that have plunged Washington into dysfunction. I want to go back to that thesis that this coup against Speaker Wright is the precise moment when our toxic political environment was born. So follow that through for us. Where, where does it go from there? Well, the two things happen in 1989, then I'll move forward. And one thing that happens right in the climactic moment of this scandal is that a position opens up in the leadership of the party, House Minority Whip, which if you're not in Washington, it sounds like, I don't know what that is, but it's actually an important job and it puts you on a path to being speaker. And a seat opens up um, because Dick Cheney, who had that job, becomes the Secretary of Defense for George H.W. Bush. And Gingrich instantly campaigns for this thing. And he runs against a guy named Ed Madigan, who's also an old school, quiet, get along Republican, and he wins. The Republicans vote for Gingrich, not Madigan. And this is big news in Washington. No one quite can believe it. And it's because of what he was doing to write that he gets this. People are saying, well, maybe this guy is visionary. Maybe he is going to bring us a majority. Uh, even people like Olympia Snow, she votes for him, and they're the deciding votes for him. And, and so one thing that comes in 99 is he's a leader. And when Wright resigns, it legitimates what Gingrich was doing in the minds of many Republicans. He was right. He did it. He delivered. Uh, and obviously, when this is over, he becomes, in 1994, the Speaker of the House, one of the most prominent Republicans in the country. And he delivers in the 1994 midterms what he promised back in 1979. With faith and with friendship and the deepest respect, you are now my speaker. And let the great debate begin. I now have the high honor and distinct privilege to present to the House of Representatives our new speaker, the gentleman from Georgia, Newt Gingrich. There, Republicans finally gained control of both chambers of, of Congress. Um, and I think the story continues. I think his style becomes the norm. I think the Republicans embrace this form of partisanship, and it gets more intense with every generation. The Tea Party made it that much more intense, and now President Trump. Yeah. Question here from the audience. Completely agree with your thesis. Is what Gingrich launched reversible? Can we get back to some degree of political civility? That's a kind of big question uh, when you read a book like this. And it's a difficult one because inherently the book is arguing this is not simply a product of the last year or so. This is really cooked into how Washington is working, how one party thinks of politics now for many generations. So it won't be easy. I am not someone who argues that this presidential election, for example, has the potential to transform everything we've been seeing for a long time. Even if Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump, you're still going to see a lot of what you're seeing right now, certainly on Capitol Hill. So I think really two things are, three things are important. One is it would take a defeat of the Republican Party so grand uh, the kind of defeat we haven't seen since 1984, a landslide. They lose control of Congress, they lose control of the White House, and they shrink. So Republicans, out of fear, say we have to change our ways. We have to expand what we're doing. We have to change the way we're doing. Uh, a second would be leaders. I mean, my book argues individuals do matter. Partisanship is not just this abstract 
force that bears down on us. There's people like a Newt Gingrich who actually changed the direction of American history. So we're looking now, who are the young leaders of the GOP, of the Democratic Party? Are they going to have a transformative vision for American politics? And, and finally, reform, uh, the kinds of questions that are very tough to get political momentum for, changing campaign finance, changing the way districts are decided in states that still do old-fashioned partisan gerrymandering. Those kinds of reforms are also going to be essential. So I'm, I'm saying it's going to be a lot of big things before we ever reverse what we have right now. Well, on that point, the nativist rhetoric, the tearing down, the demonizing of political opposition has been a model for Donald Trump. Take the president's speech on July 4th at Mount Rushmore. You and Newt Gingrich both commented on that publicly. You say it's tearing a page from Newt's playbook. Newt praised it, saying not since Ronald Reagan has a president stood so defiantly in defense of American values. That speech didn't play so well, at least in polling. So is that kind of rhetoric still, 30 years later, a winning strategy? We'll see. I mean, uh, I think we still have many months to go. His support still remains strong in the Republican Party. I mean, the, the amazing thing I often tell people is that it's notable that it's taken a pandemic to shake Republican support a little bit for the president. A major pandemic, the kind we have not experienced. That's a lot. So the question is, does the opposition, does the rest of the country and the people who don't agree with this, does it grow significantly now and in the foreseeable future? I guess we'll see. I'm still kind of on the fence about how much fallout there is from a speech like that beyond the stories, beyond short-term snapshot polls. Well, Lee Atwater also comes up in the book. You mentioned him a little bit earlier, uh, the strategist for, at first, George H.W. Bush, then President George Bush. Um, Newt calls him his brother from another mother. Now, he, and in the end of his life, is dying of a brain tumor, expressed regret about his certainly more covert, vicious politics. Did Newt, has he ever res- expressed any regret for the human toll on Jim Wright? Uh, No, actually, I found uh, when I was finishing the book, it was almost done. Someone, uh, a colleague pointed out some letter he had seen a while ago in an archive. And it's a pretty amazing exchange. In 95, uh, and I quoted in the book, uh, Jim Wright is watching and he's seen his former foe become Speaker of the House. And he writes this very poignant letter to him. Uh, saying he never really forgave him for criminalizing and destroying his reputation. He didn't think it was fair. He really resented what he had done after this guy had served in the House for so long, but he still forgives him, almost uh, religiously saying, I forgive you, uh, and he wishes him a good speakership. And it's a very moving letter where he reaches that point. And Gingrich doesn't answer for months And he writes back a short, I think it's like a two-line response, basically, thank you, I hope you're doing well. Uh, And no sense of apology. And and I think Gingrich would stand by what he does. He he stands by what he does all the time. That's one of his psychological features. He is convinced of his rightness. Um, And I don't think he feels that he did anything wrong. I mean, I found the handwritten note that he was writing as Jim Wright resigned, which was really interesting because he was jotting down notes. I found it in the archives tucked in a box and he's mad in his notes. He's like, Wright is saying this is about 
me be or partisanship and it's about you know this toxic culture he's just corrupt and he's stepping down but then at the end he says well if they're speaking about me you know i know i've arrived um and i don't think he ever has any regret about this or other uh, issues he doesn't regret the impeachment of bill clinton he is not someone who exhibits regret jim wright actually did try to show some forgiveness for what had happened to him at the hands of gingrich well, it's certainly not an admiring book, I would say, but but I couldn't help but wonder how a diehard fan of Newt Gingrich would read it. I mean, it worked. These tactics worked. They got the house back in 1994. So when you write of him being deliberate or calculating and, and even hypocritical in obliterating his enemies and trampling convention, would they think, rah, rah, you got it right, Newt? At some level, I mean, it's a funny, it's a funny thing to think about. Obviously, my book is uh, arguing that this had a really corrosive effect on American politics. It's a kind of partisanship that I think had really high costs on Washington. At the same time, I am trying to show, uh, A, he's a major player. This is not an insignificant political figure. Uh, and he was, as I said, very strategic and deliberative about what he did, and he delivered. He did exactly what he said, and it worked. Uh, so I could imagine fans of, of Newt Gingrich would like that. Um, they might put aside my conclusions about what it does to politics, but in terms of a political strategist, uh, I think they'd walk away saying, yes, uh, this, is, this is what it took. Uh, and, and I could understand that. I could understand reaching that conclusion. I think what they don't then kind of go to the next level, that would be the interesting debate. Was that worth it? Was it worth winning at all costs? Steve wants to know, did Clinton have greater success because of Gingrich's approach and takeover? That's a good question. I mean, uh, obviously, Gingrich spearheads the impeachment effort against uh, President Clinton. He also gets in a big confrontation over the government shutting down. Uh, Gingrich pioneers using the shutdown as a method of negotiating the budget. And ultimately, Part of why Bill Clinton, President Clinton succeeds is Gingrich has become one of the most detested figures in, in politics just a few years after being incredibly admired. Uh, and I think a lot of the sympathy that might not have gone to Clinton did because of his abrasive kind of just over the top mechanisms and methods of, of speaking. And Ultimately, the impeachment costs Gingrich's job, not Bill Clinton, which is a remarkable uh, part of the story uh, and, and his downfall. That said, you know, Gingrich did still shape the party. Uh, you know, the, the impeachment, Clinton survives, but he's facing a pretty conservative and aggressive party through the second part of his presidency, which doesn't allow him to do much. So in that way, Gingrich actually wins. Newt compared himself standing up to the Democrats and establishment Republicans to Martin Luther confronting charges against him by the Holy Roman Empire at Worms in 1521. It's known as the Diet of Worms. In my first reading, I thought that sounds pretty grandiose. But given all that you credit him with pulling off, is it a fair assessment? Well, that's probably an exaggeration. Uh, and uh, that is Gingrich, too. I mean, he, he definitely has a sense of self that's very strong and often becomes a reason some people don't like him. Uh, but I do think uh, it, it is fair to say uh, that his time 
before and during his speakership was incredibly consequential for his party. And we talk a lot about Ronald Reagan and we talk a lot about the presidency, but you really have to understand the role Congress plays and certain legislators like Newt Gingrich um, is very important and, and not so much in the world of ideas. I actually don't think that's where Gingrich's contributions were, even though he's often seen as this big ideas Republican. In terms of political strategy, he was, uh, he was very uh, important and remains so right through this day. Julian Zelizer is Princeton University Professor of History and Public Affairs, a CNN analyst and author of several books about politics and presidents from Lyndon Johnson to Barack Obama, and his most recent book, Burning Down the House. And we close today with another legend, or landmark, to come out of Georgia. People who live near the corner of South Finley and Deering Streets in Athens are intimately familiar with one enigmatic neighbor, the town's tallest tax-exempt landowner, a 78-year-old white oak tree. The tree that owns itself is one of the most notable locations in Athens, Georgia. That's Tommy Valentine, executive director of Historic Athens, who shared some background on the tree that owns itself, which it turns out is not the original. In 1942, when the tree was about 400 years old, it fell. The tree that we currently look at today is actually the son of the tree that owns itself. Fortunately, it was regrown from a sapling by the Junior Ladies Garden Club in 1946. Today, the son of the tree is the subject of viral internet articles, an Athens oddity that draws curious locals and tourists alike. When visiting the tree, you drive down one of the busiest roads in Athens, head away from downtown in the famous UGA Arch, um, and turn left. You go up a cobblestone street, uh, it's a sharp incline, you feel almost as if you're traveling through time. The earliest reference to the tree historians can find is an 1890 article in the Athens Weekly Banner titled, Deeded to Itself. By this account, Colonel William Henry Jackson legally conferred ownership of the tree to the tree around 1832. That tree was deeded with language that still is placed on the placard right in front of the tree that owns itself. That language says, in consideration of the great love I bear, this tree and the great desire I have for its protection for all time, I convey entire possession of itself and all land within eight feet of the tree on all sides. While the tree that owns itself is a fun detour and landmark, it's worth noting that if existing historical information is true, the tree's self-governing status highlights a bleak contrast in American history. If this tree was deeded as anticipated, then that means that a citizen in Athens recognized the need for the tree to own itself before Athens itself expressed a similar sentiment for its enslaved neighbors. In the years preceding the Civil War, according to census data, we know that roughly 50% of the population of Athens, Georgia, was enslaved. Uh, they were oftentimes leased from surrounding farms by the University of Georgia. And according to some historians, it was possible to check out a slave from the University of Georgia, much in the same way as today you would check out a library book. 
The white oak got its freedom a full 31 years before the abolition of slavery. To know that a tree was emancipated decades prior to the, the fellow Athenians that were walking around this community, it, it's a sobering fact. Like many relics of the South's past, it is many things, part local quirk and part evidence of historic atrocities. The tree that owns itself is an intrinsic part of Athens, Georgia, but more than a photo op, it adds character, complexity, and context to the city's rich history. From a conservation standpoint, it's also a good representation that historic preservation means more than just building. It means recognizing the special ingredients that define a community. Athens, Georgia is more than just a sum of its people or its roads, its trees, its buildings. It's some combination of all that. You have to recognize what are the ingredients that make Athens, Athens. And if you ask pretty much anyone, they'll agree the tree is one of those ingredients. That's Tommy Valentine, executive director of Historic Athens. For photographs of the tree that owns itself, you can visit gbb.org slash OST. And that audio postcard was produced by OST intern Chase McGee, who's returning to his studies at UGA this week. His internship started right around the first shelter orders back in March, so we never actually met him in person been a great help to us. All the best to you, Chase. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. You can keep up with all that we're doing on Twitter. We're at OST Talk. We're also on Facebook, GPB Radios on Second Thought. And you can subscribe to our show for free wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Second Thought.